0: Hello and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi,
1: Mimi. Tamar, I should tell you I've moved to Somerville, Massachusetts.
0: Oh my gosh! I'm changing I'm everything. Have to update my document. This is really <laughs> going to change everything. Everybody, please like adjust your expectations accordingly. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> um, I'm really interested to see how your opinions on Jewish feminist things change now that you are a resident of somewhere.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, This month, we're talking with Dr. Rachel B. Gross about her new book, Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice. And for our second segment, we're talking about Shiva Baby, a new film written and directed by Emma Seligman. So, for our first segment, today we're joined by Dr. Rachel B. Gross to talk about her new book, Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as a Religious Practice. Rachel is an assistant professor and the John and Marsha Goldman Chair in American Jewish Studies at San Francisco State University. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm
2: so glad to be here.
0: We are thrilled to have you. And this was a really like fascinating and juicy book to read. And um, we are really pumped to, to talk about it with you today. Um, Zahaba, I know you did some had some good questions to start with, um, so I thought maybe you would take it away.
3: Yeah, well, just to establish the basics a little bit, early on in the book, you introduce a concept that you call the mitzvah of nostalgia. Can you define that for us to sort of get the listeners oriented?
2: Yeah, that's a a great place to start. Thanks, Zahava. Um, In this book, I'm looking at um, American Jews' nostalgia for um, Ashkenazi American Jewish history, and especially immigration, American Jews immigration from Central and Eastern Europe from about 1880 to 1924. And I'm making the argument in this book that the ways that American Jews think about and engage with this history and teach themselves and their children and other Americans to engage with this history can be thought of like a mitzvah. And... I'm a religious studies scholar. I'm the kind of religious studies scholar who is interested, not just in ideas about what um, religion is in a really abstract sense. I'm interested in that too, as I think you'll see. Um, But I'm really interested in what people do. So in terms of mitzvah, I've been interested in the ways American Jews think about the word mitzvah, the way they use the word mitzvah. So I think it's got a really dual function in American Jewish um, language. It's um, mitzvah, of course, is the really practical six thirteen halachot, um, the the obligations of Jewish law that are um, that one is obligated to do because God said so, right? Or because the rabbi said so, or because your community says so, something like that. But also, it's a good deed, right? I think about I think about kids mitzvah trees and like what goes on a kid's mitzvah tree at summer camp or Sunday school or day school. And um, and it can be lighting Shabbos candles or it can be like being nice to your grandma. Right. So there's there's a there's two things here that I think ultimately um, a, a, the, the ways that American Jews talk about vote is that they are both obligatory and praiseworthy. You're both obliged to do them. And one gets to say, good job. Thank you for doing that. Um, so the mitzvah of nostalgia is the idea that it, my idea that, um, the ways that American Jews think about this moment in American Jewish history is has become both obligatory and praiseworthy. And in this book, I look at four case studies. I look at the um, at American Jewish genealogists and the ways that they um, tell and retell their family histories. I look at historic synagogues that are used as museums in the United States. I look at children's books and dolls. And I um, I look at new Jewish food ways, especially what one might call artisanal or hipster delis. And all of these, I think, are ways that American Jews tell their stories. And I think I make the argument in this book that um, these ultimately are best understood as practices of American Jewish religion.
3: Yeah, that brings me to the second thing that I thought of as sort of a baseline question here, because all of these are activities, as you very clearly acknowledge in the book, that others might think of as just culturally Jewish and not actually as religious observances. And so I was trying to put together a, a working definition of what constituted a religious observance in the way you're conceiving of it. So I'm going to give you my like very layperson rendering, and then you can tell me where I'm going wrong. So from the book, I'm inferring that a a religious activity is one that is about making meaning and that connects you to a wider Jewish network of people, whether those are other Jews in community today or other generations of Jews, past or future. So that's that's my best attempt. Can you help refine that, refine that and help us define religious as opposed to cultural?
2: I love your um, your rendering of my definition of religion. Thank you, Zahava. I appreciate that. Um, I think about religion as ultimately as relationships and relationships that matter. Um, I think religion is a really good word for things that matter. And um, I think about, as you say, religion is relationships that matter, relationships that place one, um, that help one understand one's place in in the universe and, and answer existential questions. So those are relationships that one might have with living community, with ancestors, um, or with God or other divine spirits. And they're um, the practices and texts and activities that form the basis of those relationships. So this is a really big and expansive idea of religion um, that both includes things we might think of as traditionally religious and I think helps us think a little bit differently about things that we might assume are cultural. So what do I think is cultural? Um, I really like a definition that the Jewish studies scholar David Beale uses in his Cultures of the Jews book. It's, it's a great book. Um, and he says culture is the things we do around here. So for me, um, religion is a good is a really good word to help us think about the ways in which the things we do around here matter and why they matter.
3: Thank you. That was really helpful.
0: I have was really interested in thinking about how I I found when I was reading your book how how strange it was to me that it was like so heavily focused like you said on Ashkenazi Judaism of a very specific time period like this mitzvah of Jewish nostalgia that you talk about is so in a way it's like such a specific vision of Judaism and I was just found myself thinking like well what what about people who you know, immigrated to the United, their families were immigrating to the United States after that time or never immigrated to the United States. Like, what does this mean about Jews? I mean, I know that you focused on Jews in the United States, but like it does call into question, like what is the connection that we have with Jews who aren't American Jews? If we're only feeling this connection to people who immigrated to this country and My biggest question was really like, what would I, how would I feel about this if I was not Ashkenazi? Like I, I think a lot about my daughter who is adopted. And so she actually does have some Ashkenazi Jewish heritage, but most of her heritage is not that. Um, And like, what do, I don't feel like I need her to be, to feel any strong nostalgia for a time period that really doesn't have any particular connection to her, um, and I, yeah, I guess I just wonder, like, where does this big focus on that time leave anyone who doesn't fit neatly into that narrative?
2: Yeah, I love that you're jumping into that question right away, Tamar. I um, I want to answer that question, and I also want to say just a word about what this book is and is not supposed to do. Um, This is an academic book and it's primarily, I think about this book having multiple audiences, but my primary audience is a religious studies academic audience. And it's not primarily um, a book that's Supposed to tell you what to think. I what I'm doing in this book is laying out um, something that I see as a major trend among American Jews and saying we should take it seriously. However, you feel about this thing, um, my job is really to do the work of laying it out and giving you my best analysis of how prevalent this story of Ashkenazi um heritage is. So I think um, one of the one of the pieces of pushback i got especially when i was writing this over the many years i was writing this book um it started as my master's thesis when i was 20 years old at the university of virginia before i went on to write it as a dissertation and then turn it into a book so it's been a long time (laughs) but one of the one of the visas uh one of the uh one of the things that that people have pushed back against as i've been working on it and and now as i've been talking about it now that it's come out is aren't aren't you talking about ashkenormativity um that, that, the, the dominance of the Ashkenazi story and the dominance of Ashkenazi culture. Um, and you know what? Yeah, I, I am. And I think that, um, the, if one wants to, um, think about the dangers of Ashkenormativity, the first thing you have to do is understand how deep and how prevalent it is. So my book does not do the work of, um, of saying, now that this thing is laid out and I, I want us to understand how, how deep and how meaningful it is for many people, um, it doesn't do the work of filling in other people's stories. I think of that as, as essential work that other people should do. Um, that said, I think your question was also, um, how do other people fit into and, and relate to the story of Ashkenazi American heritage and, and really the, not just Ashkenazi Jews, but really Central and Eastern European Jews and this turn of the nostalgia for turn of the century immigration. Um, and I, I see this nostalgia as so big and so powerful that it encompasses people with other, um, backgrounds and other family stories for better and for worse, in my opinion. Um, so one, place that I see this is, um, when I look at historic synagogues i um, I decide I mostly look at historic synagogues that were built by um, Ashkenazi Jews around the turn of the century right that's mostly the and I'm looking at how they're depicting um how they're now used as heritage sites and and how their stories are, are told to the public but I decided to include the Toro synagogue in Newport Rhode Island which is the oldest synagogue building in the United States It was built by colonial Sephardi Jews. That's an entirely different history. But when I started to study them, I saw that the pattern of the story that they're telling is the same pattern. The way they talk about immigrants, the way they talk about upward success of American Jews is, I think, based on the same pattern. And I think it it shows us how deep and how prevalent this is. Um, when I when I thought about Jewish, gene- when I looked into Jewish genealogists and and folks um, like your daughter, who has has multiple um family histories in a number of different ways, I think. Um I I think that many American Jews are are told that they need to implicitly or explicitly, and I think it's often meant really kindly, that they're told that this is the family history they need to focus on. Um, and and even if they're told it's an, even if it's not that they need to focus on it, when I looked at Jewish genealogical organizations, this was the dominant story, right? If you go to a Jewish genealogy group, then the, one of the main reasons to go to a genealogy group, as opposed to doing this research on your own, is to learn how to do the research. So it helps to have a common story, right? It, it helps to know that how this, it, it, like it's not a, this isn't a slight against genealogists, but a, but a, a noticing how big and dominant the story is. I also think, I, I, I know I'm talking a lot, um, That's why you're here. I'll um, I'll maybe note two more examples of I think the, the way this works. Um when I looked at delis, I saw that um one interesting thing that happens in the kind of nouveau artisanal hipster delis that I'm looking at that are interested in sustainability and local foods. They're doing all kinds of interesting foods with Ashkenazi American cuisine. Um And, and actually, and, and they're, they're smart people, you know, the people who, who run these businesses and they're, um, they're interested in other forms of Jewish history. And they say, we're telling a form of Jewish history through our food. We're telling a form of American Jewish history through our food. And the main one we're telling is this story of Central and Eastern European Jewish immigration. Um, and, I, I, I love um, I'm, I'm in the Bay Area. I'm in San Francisco and and just across the Bay in Berkeley is Saul's Deli. And one of the co-owners of Saul's Deli, Karen Adelman, explicitly says we're telling the story of Jews coming from Central and Eastern Europe and moving to New York. And they keep going west until they hit Berkeley, California, and like <laughs> Berkeley, California becomes like the apotheosis of Jewish history. And it's it's so good. I love it so much. But she's conscious of other stories of Jews being important. Certainly here in the Bay Area, we have a remarkably diverse Jewish community. So Sephardi and Mizrahi food does get incorporated into these places and often as a literal side dish, which I think is a really fascinating (laughs) metaphor, right? (laughs) I think so much is going Like, that's amazing. And I say that with so much respect for the deli owners. I I don't think they should... If they were to focus on Sephardi and Mizrahi foods, their businesses would be different businesses, right? right, um, right. But I, I think it's 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 such a good metaphor for American Judaism. <laughs> oh, my
1: gosh.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, maybe I'll tell you one more story about the ways in which I think this allows or doesn't allow for other people's stories. Um, I conclude the book in part by thinking about um, – uh, by thinking about staff members um, at the Museum at Eldridge Street, which is the um, heritage organization that runs the um, Eldridge Street Synagogue, which is a synagogue on the Lower East Side from the 1880s, um, really a center of the nostalgia that I'm talking about. And um, these two staff members, two women, met at the Museum of, at Eldridge Street and um, fell in love, decided to get married, and um, by then one was a former staff member. And um, they decided that the museum at Eldridge Street had been such an important part of their story, right, their story as a couple. And they decided they wanted it to be part of their wedding in some way. The museum at Eldridge, the Eldridge Street Synagogue is not only run by the museum at Eldridge Street, it also um the space is also still used by an orthodox congregation that has continuously used that space since the 1880s at at one point the building kind of fell into disrepair and they moved into like the Beit Midrash in the basement um but they they've been there continuously um, these two staff members or former staff members decided they didn't want to rock the boat, right? They're savvy museum people. They don't want to cause any friction between the museum and the Orthodox congregation. They're not going to ask as as a lesbian couple to get married in the synagogue. In fact, on a Saturday night, they got married at a dim sum restaurant down the street um, and they took wedding photos um, on the street, on the Lower East Side, in front of the museum. And then on Sunday morning, when the space officially was the museum's space, they had they had separated their ketubah signing from the wedding. And they decided to have their ketubah signing the day after the wedding on a Sunday morning. They invited all their friends and family, um, and they, they had that ceremony there. So this is... one, oh, and one of the women also is not Jewish. So it's a lesbian couple and it's an interfaith couple. Probably should have
0: mentioned
2: that at the beginning of this story. No, I mean, Um,
0: it's so, there's like so many layers to it.
2: But I Um, think one big takeaway of it, and I'll I'll, want to hear what what you make of it also, but um, I think one big takeaway from this story is that this big and encompassing nostalgia sweeps people into it, right? Um, And that can be harmful in in certainly in some ways. And maybe if we want to think about ways that people can be included in Jewish community, I think it can, in my opinion, it can also be productive um, as well as restrictive.
1: Rachel, at one point you talk about the experience of giving talks on these topics and having Sometimes there's something like a gendered response to your, your core thesis. And I, I wanted to share briefly that it, well, you talk about, you know, women coming up to you and saying, yeah, something like, yes, I feel you. This is <laughs> true and right. And I really had that experience while reading your book. Um, I think the language of nostalgia gave me, it, it brought up, Something that I've felt I gave my son the name Reuben Mayer Wolf. And when I came up with the name, and it's tied to family and but nobody had that actual name. But I still feel this little thrill at imagining that he is not the first Reuben Mayer Wolf. That there was probably somebody in the 1850s named Reuben Mayer Wolf, or even before. <laughs> And I love that. And I long for that connection to a person I've never met, to a family I am not actually a part of. Um, but that feels like a very gendered response on my part. I don't think my husband feels that. And uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, and maybe my story is a side point, but I'm wondering if you can talk about the gendered responses and
2: what you think that means. I love that story, Mimi. Thank you for sharing that. And I, to me your story and um, the kinds of responses, some of the kinds of responses that I've gotten about my book is that this is a book about feelings and this is a book about how important feelings are. I think men have feelings too. (laughs) Um, I don't know. They can speak for themselves. Um, I, I think women are, trained to be better at talking about their feelings. Um, Some of the things that I'm looking at get coded as women's work. Um, Certainly managing feelings, managing family feelings gets coded as women's work. Um, But I am talking about both men and women and people of all genders in this book. Um, And I I think about 50% of the people I look at in this book are men, in part because um, I'm looking at institutions and men tend to run a lot of institutions. I'm looking at restaurants. There's, there's certainly gendered issues in all of the categories that I'm thinking about. But yeah, I think that the feelings issue that you point to is, um, is maybe something that, that women are, are better at articulating or, or more comfortable Articulating, yeah, and more familiar with, yeah, and part of what I'm doing in this book is is trying to get folks to take those feelings seriously, right? That all those feelings that get coded as like women's feelings is like actually like we all have these, and and they're like part of major Jewish, Jewish institutions is trying to teach folks how to feel, um, yeah, and trying to get them using the word religion for me is part of that effort of getting people to take that, those feelings seriously.
0: I feel like as a, somebody who is like not really into any of the the things that you, I mean, <laughs> one of the, one of the chapters of your book is about Jewish children's books. And I have written a Jewish children's book and you do in fact include me in the acknowledgements because years ago you interviewed me for something. So like, what, Stipulated, but like Jewish children's books are not actually a big part of my life. Like I wrote that book many, many years ago now, um, and yeah, all of the, like I, I was having I was having some hard feelings while reading the book because I was like, huh, I have a lot of feelings about Judaism, but they're really all centered around. Like ritual Judaism, or I don't even know what like how how you would kind of differentiate it from the the religion that you're talking about. But they're really not coded around nostalgia. They're really mostly focused on like ritual and synagogue life. And so it made me wonder, like, what I I think that there has been, and I know we kind of want to talk more about this. There's been an overemphasis on like, are people doing enough of that stuff? Which I don't care about. Like, I don't need more people to be doing it. But as a person who does find it meaningful, hearing about some of this stuff where I'm like, this means nothing to me. Like Jewish genealogy is just like, I can't, I'm not, I just don't get to that place of being like, oh my gosh, my second, third cousin once removed was also in Vilna. Like, I just don't, I'll never feel that way. I don't think. And I don't think that's bad. Like, I. but I was just like, huh? Like, I guess there's been so much emphasis on like, do people go to synagogue? And now there's, we're starting to think about partially because of your work, like, well, there's other ways that people are kind of like accessing these religious feelings. And I was just like, wow, I like, I'm totally like feel nothing for those, but I'm like extremely hot on these other ones. Like, what does that mean for going forward like are are like is this like a sea change and people are really going to be flocking from one end to another or are we entering a a phase where it's like there's just going to be um two communities that are kind with people kind of traveling between them because one of the things that i thought was also really interesting is like There's plenty of people in your book who are invested in these nostalgia based activities who are also invested in, you know, what you might call like traditional or synagogue Judaism, Um, like particularly in the genealogy chapter, you talk about that. But I think like there's no reason that you can't be really involved in Jewish foodways and also somebody who like keeps kosher and goes to shul every day or every week. But that's but it seems like those are mostly kind of separate communities.
2: I appreciate all of your feelings, Tamar, and I really appreciate the ways that you talk about them and recognize that the the types of what I would call religious activities are totally compatible with traditional (laughs) religious activities, which is is something um, folks don't always pick up on um, that. I'm certainly not coming along and saying, like, these are more important or these are going to replace traditional religious activities. I, I'm i <laughs> like you. I'm the kind of person who keeps a, um, a hecksure kosher home. I'm not Shomer Shabbat. I do often belong to a synagogue. Great. Right? Like I'm, I'm that Jew. Um, I'm not attacking that kind of Jew in any way. What I am doing is saying, Hey, there's lots of other people who, um, find meaning in their lives in complementary ways and in ways, um, and people who aren't interested in things that, um, that we traditionally recognize as Jewish and are finding meaning in their lives, not just individual meaning. And I think this is really important in in my work is recognizing that this isn't doing it on your own. Um, that the types of nostalgia that I'm looking at are other types of Jewish institutions. And actually when we say traditional Jewish religious stuff, we actually, the ways American Jews think about this is, um, is actually not just synagogues, but we think about, usually when we think about establishment Judaism, really, um, or, or legacy institution Judaism. These are some ways I, I've heard folks talk about it. We really think about synagogues, Jewish community centers and federations. Jewish community centers and federations are not like actually in a standard definition of religion, but they are really central to the ways that American Jews have talked about religion. Um, and, and maybe I can say, like, a word about why this matters um, and why it matters that I'm going around labeling all kinds of things religious. Um, it, it matters in a couple of ways. Um, it, you know, I, I'm doing it because I, I'm a religious studies theorist and, like, that's that's how I have fun professionally. Um, I enjoy this. But, uh, but also, um, definitions of religion matter. They matter politically, right? They matter legally. Um, you get things, um, are accorded certain legal protections when they are understood by the U S government as religious. I don't think that Jewish genealogists are going to get legal protections for their work, but it's worth understanding that the stakes can be quite high. Um, no, well, the stakes
0: around Jewish <laughs> genealogy have certainly been very, very high historically. So
2: You're it's right.
0: not like a crazy thing to say.
2: And, and certainly in terms of Israeli citizenship. Like, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Real, real statehood citizenship issues. Absolutely. Thank you for naming that. Um, I, I f- suspect that that you're all thinking also about um, Jewish communal surveys um, and the ways that those have dictated Jewish um, Jewish money, right? Jewish communal funds um, that. Um, I, I suspect you've probably talked about the the Pew survey from 2013 of American Jews on this show before. <laughs> Am I right?
3: Yes, amazing, yes. amazing. <laughs>
2: so that survey built on lots of other um, Jewish surveys that the previous. Um, National Jewish survey had differentiated between affiliated and unaffiliated Jews, right? So if you, um, give money to federation, but don't go to synagogue, you're affiliated, right? Um, if you belong to a JCC, you're affiliated, right? Um, Pew went right, the Pew survey went right ahead and labeled folks Jews by religion and Jews of no religion, right? So it literally, and, and the goal is in all these surveys is those folks who say no, Like Jews of no religion. The folk, the goal of these surveys for many Jewish communal organizations is to bring them into the fold, into those legacy institutions, right? So one of the things I'm doing in this book is saying, um, as a, as a humanist, right? As somebody who does qualitative research, I think that I'm productively engaged in conversations with um, quantitative sociologists and say, hey, here's what you're missing in those quantitative surveys. Here's how we could more productively analyze Jews. Um, And I think that Jews are actually really bad about talking. Like many other people, Jews are bad about what's talking, about talking about what is meaningful in their lives, right? And that's the third reason that I I hope that this book, insofar as any Jews um, who are not academics, read it. um, I would... Love for folks, they don't have to agree with my definition of religion. You, none of the three of you have to agree with my definition of religion. That's fine, right? Um, but I hope that folks who read this book might think a little bit differently about the ways they form meaning in their lives um, through everyday activities, whether or not, you know, tomorrow, you don't have to be a genealogist, but, but I know that you form meaning in your, <laughs> in your life and, and are deeply invested in communities in, in many different different ways. Right. So, so religion matters in that way. And, and to go back to the, the sociologist just for a second, um, I think that, that the, the types of questions that sociologists have been asking, which have, again, um, directed the ways that American Jewish organizations have been, have been using their money, um, I mean, in, on a really big scale um, has been based on the idea that American Jews are not invested in Judaism, right, that there's there's a a fear of decline. And I wanna say, hey, I spent 15 years of my life analyzing the ways that American Jews are forming deep meaning and engaged in community and engaged in communal institutions. And and you're looking at in the wrong places, right? That American Jews are doing the things you want
3: them to do, but in ways you haven't recognized. You know, one way in which this feels maybe uh, unexpectedly timely to me, because I'm sure this book was written 99 percent pre covid pandemic is that um, as I was reading this, I was thinking one important effect of getting beyond the synagogue and your conception of active Jewish religion is that most of what's discussed here can continue during COVID in a way that shul life really can't. And I'm wondering, have you thought about that? Is that something that you've been thinking about a lot during this pandemic um, and what that means for both how we think about uh, people's ongoing connection to Judaism now and also how it might be changing people's conception of how to look at Jewish life going forward.
2: Yeah, I I appreciate that question, Sahaba. Thank you. I think on a really literal level. A lot of the things I'm writing about in this book cannot be done in a pandemic. You Jewish genealogy groups can't meet in person. Um, they can, they're pretty adaptable and they've been meeting online. I know um, a lot of Jewish genealogy is now internet research, but you can't go to an archive um, or, or for a long time you couldn't go to an archive. Um, you can't go to a museum Um museums have been trying to adapt but we all know
3: it's not the same sorry museum staffers those pj library delivery deliveries are still going strong as i can attest i am glad to
2: hear it i'm glad to hear it as long as the mail service it keeps up
3: i did just get a porum book
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it was definitely a, like this book has been in the mail for like four and a half months situation but
2: Amazing. that's not PJ
0: Libraries. Um, that's not their fault. I, I will take it up with the Postmaster
2: General. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. I hope you do. You can't go to a deli, of course, in a large part of the of of what's so evocative, um, of, of eating about eating at a deli is being in that space, right. And, and the way that you sit down at a deli and order your pastrami sandwich or eat your pickle, um, pastrami is my favorite. That's always, why it's always my go-to when mm-hmm. I say this. Um, uh, you, you, you sit there and you think about all the other times you might have been in a deli with your family or, or all of your imaginary conceptions of delis and, and so on. Um, what I am hearing from deli owners is that um, folks have really been turning towards ordering their food in, in this time period. And I think that really um, speaks to the idea. I've, I've really been wrestling with the the way nostalgia has been functioning in the pandemic. Folks are, are ordering deli because it's a comfort food in the pandemic. And I, I wrote... I, I really think I wrote 100% of this book, um, before the pandemic because academic publishing takes a very long time. So it, it was due like January before the pandemic. And then it was a year of, of, um, like, like proofing basically. <laughs> um, so I was like able to put in a line about the pandemic in the acknowledgements, but the rest of the acknowledgements had already been written pre pandemic. Um, It's been a weird time to be a scholar of nostalgia. And it's been a weird time first because in the Trump era, pre-pandemic was a weird time to be a scholar of nostalgia because I heard rightfully so. All of a sudden in the Trump era, folks were saying, hey, nostalgia is Terrible because of the focus on white supremacy that we've seen. And I I attended the University of Virginia. Um, the attacks in the attack in Charlottesville was, was very dear to my heart. I I was extremely upset by that. And, and all of a sudden we were having a a conversation that many folks have been having for a very long time. Um, but, but it was brought to new prominence in the Trump era about how harmful certain types of nostalgia can be, like nostalgia for the lost cause of the Confederacy. Um, and then all and I was like, oh my god, my book's gonna come out in the Trump era. Like, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna be <laughs> defending nostalgia, or at least saying, like, hey, it can work in multiple ways. I thought that was gonna be really awkward. And then the pandemic happened, and um there's there's nothing, nothing good about the pandemic, obviously. Um, but all of a sudden, the narrative shifted and everyone was like, we love nostalgia. It's the only thing that's going to get us through our isolation. Right. <laughs> so I think of my work as actually um, thinking about the way nostalgia is really um complicated and can be both good and bad that, that it, it's not just one or the other. And it's not just that institutions or public forms of nostalgia like the lost cause can be harmful, but actually, um, arguably one could argue that many of the institutions I'm looking at are doing something productive for American Jews and also leaving people out in other ways, right? So I think it, it does both. I think of nostalgia both as productive, producing Communal, shared communal meaning, and reductive. It's it's necessarily a reductionist story that that leaves other stories out. And to your point about the pandemic, like where are we meeting? Right. I I think <laughs> my book is is as you, as I think you're pointing out, Zahava. My book is about the the many types of places that Jews have been meeting, the many ways that they have been forming community, and certainly we've been seeing that in the pandemic that folks have been finding new and creative ways to support um established communities and to build new ones. Um
0: I wanna I wanna close by telling a story that I think uh, that I've been thinking about a lot in light of your book, which is um I was talking with my daughter um already sometime last year about um slavery in the United States. My daughter is black and I said something about slaves and she said my ancestors were slaves in Egypt. Hmm. And I was like Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that that lesson made it through. But like, in fact, her ancestors were enslaved in this country. And I don't think the way that we talk about uh, slavery in, in Judaism is n- really nostalgia, but it's a central narrative. And I had, in a, I mean, and I'm, this is not like about me, but I just think it's an interesting like the, this, the narrative of that Jewish piece of history had superseded the like actual historical narrative relate, related to my child's actual life. And I was in the middle of those things thinking about, Oh, how do I like put these things together? Cause I want her to grow up feeling connected to this story of my ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. But I also want her to feel connected to her actual literal, uh, heritage of enslavement in this country. And I think that those, um, part of what this book is doing is like kind of wrestling with that in between space of like people's lived experience and nostalgia that may or may not be like directly connected to their lives or like, I don't even know what the word would be like biologically connected to them or Mm -hmm. something. Um, But yeah, I just, I've been thinking about that a lot because of, of this kind of like important, this look that you give to, to the importance of those, those stories.
2: Thank you so much for, for sharing that story and that reflection, Tamar. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: any of our listeners who are interested in buying, uh, Rachel's books, talking into listeners get 30% off of their copy of beyond the synagogue. If they buy it through the NYU press website, uh, we have the, uh, discount code on, in our show notes. It, so check it out if you're interested in buying it and we recommend that you do. Cause we really got
2: a lot out of it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure to get to talk to you guys. All right.
0: We will talk to you soon.
2: So for our second topic, we're
1: talking about Shiva Baby. It's a new film written and directed by Emma Seligman. It stars Rachel Sennott as Danielle, a college senior who is making some money by hooking up with sugar daddies she meets online. In the film's opening scene, we see Danielle with a client who gives her money and talks about how happy he is to help an up and coming entrepreneur like her. Later that day, she attends a shiva with her parents where she runs into her ex-girlfriend, Maya, and the client from the first scene, along with his wife and baby daughter. Many scenes of exquisite, some might say excruciating awkwardness ensue. Um, So I think we'll have to start off with asking Tamar what you thought of it, because in our group chat, you were the most positive. So I think you need to really (laughs) tell us why.
0: Um, Okay. I don't want to... I did not love this movie. I think that, like, I just... I am so missing of Jewish events, which usually end with some kind of excruciatingly awkward, like bagel situation that I just was like watching this movie like oh my gosh this is so terrible and also like oh I miss those people
3: I love that you just use the phrase bagel like situation I, because in this case it could refer to both a literal eating of bagel situation and also the broader <laughs> like you know stand in for Jewish culture as simple it, it yeah. is both of those things in this movie yes. <laughs>
0: Exactly. I also like, I have to say that the the opening scene of this movie is like, people having sex. And I kind of was hoping there was going to be more <laughs> of that. <laughs> and there really wasn't. So if you are going to this movie thinking like this is going to be a sexy movie, like, it's not it's a like, super awkward movie but I will say that there is like a queer love story in it which I found like really really sweet and affecting and just made me think like oh yeah like we just don't see like I know like a million (laughs) queer Jewish women and like for some reason they're not represented um in in movies typically and so it was like really sweet to see this these two Jewish women who are like like love and support each other but also are like kind of like frenemies (laughs) and there's like tension between their families like I don't know I think a part of my reaction to this movie was just being like oh I know every single one of the people (laughs) in this movie and I don't like all of them but I kind of miss all of them and so my reaction was like I feel very awkward about this like about the setting of this movie like everything about it kind of makes not me feel super cringy but also I don't know I do feel affection for for all of it even as much as I cringe all right I I've just said a lot of confused things about it so you guys did not like it I take it I found it to not be pleasant viewing
3: um I one of the (laughs) reviews, I checked the Rotten Tomatoes page for this movie, which I should say is very I think it's over 90 percent fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, um, something like that. But one of the reviews that was excerpted on the page referred to this movie as a feature length anxiety attack, which I Mm -hmm. think was very apt. um, Like you are experiencing somebody having a very anxious experience themselves so I give full credit to the acting and the writing for feeling real and genuine and like convincing and all of that is true and I was also just saying to myself I don't know why this is a movie like I don't Mm. it's, it's not that it's not well done for what it is but I don't know what artistic value is brought by me experiencing this person's like horrible close of college anxiety and communal pressure to like find herself set with a boyfriend and a job like when you break it down that way that is a story I know um this is somebody where like I have sympathy for that plight and very broad strokes. But when you get to this actual person and what appear to be very bad choices she's making, I don't have any sympathy for her in the like specific sense. Um, And I appreciate that even the Jewish stereotypes that are manifested by the minor characters still feel like real people and that the acting is good. But I was just like, this doesn't feel like a story for which there was any compelling need to me.
1: You know, I read a review that um, that used the word claustrophobic, which I think is was really how I felt in this. A lot of the shots, um, you don't really get a good sense for the space that they're in. It's they're just a lot of really crowded rooms, which is a familiar setting in a Shippa, um call. That it was just like a table and very crowded around that. You also don't get a great sense for how long are they there and what time of day is it? And there's there's it's almost a um, a joke that we don't actually know who's died or what anybody there, how anybody there is connected to the person who's died. She played um, bridge with your Bobby, but, Mimi. Come on, yeah. Mimi. <laughs> Bobby played bridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So, so, but, the, but there's this claustrophobia of the people and the time that is spent in this small place. Um, and the review I read compared it to another movie, another recent movie called Uncut Gems, um, which also feels like an anxiety attack that you are just like swimming in with the main character, who is also a very unlikable you um, so I watched both of those in within about a week and I feel um, I feel really done like I just need a palate cleanser right now but I do want to point out a few things that I thought were interesting and maybe culturally relevant the first is that the main character is not conventionally beautiful but that's almost never discussed in the film, even by her hypercritical mother. They, they do talk a lot about her weight, but it's it's OK that this woman with her like frizzy, curly hair and her schnoz and her thick eyebrows is considered sexy. And I appreciated that. You I disagree
0: that she's not conventionally attractive. Okay. <laughs> like She's like. I mean, she's not like super hot, and there's like a blonde woman who's supposed to be like this is the conventionally attractive one. But I always feel like in movies, like we're talking about like gradations of hot people, right? <laughs> like, like no one, none of the the three women who we see the most of in this movie, which are Danielle, her ex girlfriend Maya, and the wife of the guy that she was sleeping with, like, they're all pretty. Yeah. <laughs> like they I can't I can't see any of them having trouble like convincing people that they're pretty.
3: I, I don't know. I'm with Mimi but in the sense. Maybe that, I'm um if I don't think she is somebody who looks like someone who could make money by like being on a sugar baby's website. Like there's a certain kind of beauty. Oh, I think you are really underestimating men (laughs) (laughs) or overestimating men, I guess. Or maybe I'm underestimating the specificity of people's random fetishes. I don't know. Um, One thing I will say, just as a total side note, is that the um, the wife that you mentioned, the wife character that you mentioned is played by Diana Agron. Um, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her last name correctly, but she played one of the cheerleaders on Glee like one of the prominent main characters on Glee. And I thought she was familiar. And I have found it interesting, actually, that in the post-Glee era, she has cropped up in small, interesting character roles in, a, in multiple random indie movies. And I was just, I'm surprised and sort of mildly impressed by her choosing this path in acting. That's a little bit <laughs> of a detour, but I just wanted to note it. Mm. I will say that... Um, the guy she was sleeping with in the first scene who is married to the Diana Agron character is certainly not conventionally attractive enough to have gotten that woman. So that that I'll just throw out there. Um, Okay. Can I ask you guys, does this look like something that would happen immediately after a funeral that you would attend? Like I have never gone from a Jewish funeral immediately to someone's home. Like that doesn't, And this may be like an Orthodox thing. I don't know. I mean, it is also true that in the Orthodox community, like it's you don't go to a shiva house and see a big spread of food like that is not normal to Mm. me. But I understand that it is normal outside the Orthodox segment of the Jewish world. Um, But like if you were to go to somebody's funeral, would you then go to their relative's house for a buffet? Does this seem like an actual Jewish thing to you? Because it seemed very alien to me.
1: I think that's a good point. It's. In my experience, it's not the moment after the funeral, but it's prep- the next day there's going to be a shiva call. And in my experience, there is a buffet and people you don't really know will show up.
3: And talking to each other rather than just like sitting in front of the mourner interacting with them. Like these people were like at yes. a smorgasbord. I don't know. This is like not how I've ever experienced
0: a Shiva. I definitely have gone from a funeral to directly to the Shiva house where there was a lot of food. And and I have, in fact, been in now several conversations of like planning the funeral and then planning like who's going to be at the house to like unpack the platters of food because people will be coming immediately from the cemetery to the house.
1: That is definitely a thing. I don't even want to go there. I hate all of that. But, <laughs> but I mean, what else did you think was? Uh, I, I guess I was talking with my husband Daniel, who watched this film with me, and he felt like there was something, um, something interesting about the fact that both of the core relationships in this film were secrets. Um so the main character and her sugar daddy, the main character and her ex-girlfriend, which this the family seemed to know that there was something between them. But nobody really is aware that their relationship continues or that they were actually dating and not just randomly hooking up and that there's something there around sort of the pressure that we put on young people and the way that that pushes relationships into secrecy at this particular age, post-college. I don't know. Do you think there's anything there of interest?
0: I think the fact that both of those relationships were secret was really kind of pointing at how the queer relationship, which was clearly like a, in many ways, like a healthy and loving relationship, like they In the beginning, they're kind of rivals uh, and she's feeling really competitive with her ex, but they have like a a number of actually like very sweet moments and it doesn't feel that way at the end. And um, like they have actually like a functional, caring relationship, but it's secret. I think the implication is like because it's queer, like because like they're both supposed to have boyfriends. Um, which is interesting because like you don't get the impression that this is a community that's like openly homophobic, but like both of their parents would prefer that they have. They're supposed to have boyfriends in the same
3: way that they're supposed to go to law school rather than being artists. Like you should be sort of conventional and like create the kind of future that we all envision in, in the most established way.
0: Right. And both of these women are women who are like trying to figure out like what is their place in this world and like maybe coming out is not something that they are like want to do because they're like, well, what does that mean for kind of like where I am in my life and in my community? Um, but like the relationship with her, with the sugar daddy is secret because it's gross. Like he's gross and she's gross about it. And like, whatever. I mean, I don't mean this to in any way denigrate sex workers, but like, that's the implication of this movie is like, this is a not good situation for a number of reasons. And, um, and like she is much, 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 much more stressed about the idea that like anyone would understand that this is what's happening than with the sugar daddy than she is with the queer relationship. Like both of those things happen in secret, but one of them, like the stakes are way higher. Um, And I think that is, and that is a heterosexual relationship. It's just also a paid relationship. Um, And I think that's the, that's the difference.
3: It is funny, like the, so Sugar Daddy and his uh, non-Jewish wife are asked how they met and they say they met online, um, which is sort of this funny, funhouse mirror reflection of the fact that um, Danielle, the main character, connected him through this Sugar Daddy's website. and at the same time, when the like various Yentas at this Shiva ask her whether she's dating anybody, like, but have you tried J-Date or J-Swipe or, um, and Mm-mm. some of this, not not so much that it felt like a comment on online dating in the Jewish world, but just that it's a new venue for the exact same pressures. Um, but at the same time, it means that you're, because sort of the universe of opportunity has shifted in, in terms of finding a partner that your possibility of finding people, quote unquote, the old way like the way her mom keeps pressuring her to like talk to this guy and that guy and network and maybe they have a job for you and whatever at the shiva in the in person scrum like that feels deeply uncomfortable and weird to her because that is not how you connect with people right now and the notion of being forced to be like in person with dozens of people and have and make connections in either a romantic or professional sense is like the wrong kind of pressure and that there's a generation gap in figuring that out. I don't know. I, I feel like very much a spectator to all this because, um, I've been married for close to 11 years now and met my husband basically before there were before like anybody, any of my peers were dating online. Um, and so I just kind of skipped this cultural shift, but it does, I think, feed the airlessness and isolation feeling that you have about the main character, that she's not actually in any meaningful sense connected in person to the people in space around her, that there's something else going on with how she is connecting with people.
0: Mm -hmm. There is this sense that like, she has this like vibrant, I mean, they're super awkward, but (laughs) vibrant is definitely true. Community all literally all around her in this movie and like she, the the opening scene where she's sleeping with the sugar daddy is in this like big empty Soho apartment. It's very like airless kind of. Um, and so, or I don't know, it's very airy. Like there's no one there. It's this big empty space. And so it does kind of contrast this like, this relationship happens almost in a vacuum versus like her, her life is actually this like very complex and crowded and anxiety-ridden place. Um and yeah, I mean I thought that was very well done and also super stressful to watch. But that was the point.
1: I for one will be happy if I never watch a film again that uses a baby crying like <laughs> constantly. As a mother of a young child who still cries a lot, I'm just like I get me out of here. Why would I willingly listen to anybody else's kids scream? I hate
0: that. <laughs> also, I, we haven't mentioned one of the weirdest things about this movie, which is that this is like a, basically a comic, like a, I don't know. This is like a stress comedy. Um, I don't know if I just made up that genre. <laughs> Let's say this is a stress comedy with horror music as it's with horror movie score yes like the whole score is it's scored as if somebody's about to get murdered around every corner and there's a lot of corners in this house too um and I didn't I knew almost nothing about it when I sat down to watch it except that I knew that there was some horror connection and I was like I don't know if I could, I like, don't like horror movies. So I was like, I don't know if I can handle this. And then it started and I was like, this is definitely not a horror movie, but it does have horror music, which is also
3: kind of hilarious and smart, but also quite weird. I mean, I always sort of suspect that indie movies don't have the budget to pay for using existing source music um, and to get the rights to things like (laughs) that. But yeah, this is like very discordant sort of jangling strings kind of thing um, in in a way that definitely heightens the the atmospheric stress of the movie. Shout out, by the way, um, you know, I did say, despite my really not enjoying this movie, that the performances across the board were very good. And shout out especially to Fred Malamud as her dad, who um, he was one of the... I think he might have been the only face I recognized in the as as like, oh, I' have seen him before, and he was excellent um and played a stereotype as though it was not a stereotype in a way that was it's sort of hard to explain what I mean by that, but it it felt well done and refreshing, yeah
1: the one other face I recognized was one of the nosy women um, mm-hmm. also played a nosy friend in one of my favorite um bits of. American Jewish nostalgia kissing Jessica Stein. Mm. I love that. Yes. I don't even yes. know that woman's name. She's so good at being
0: married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: um, all right. Well, it sounds like we were largely not a thumbs up on this movie, but um, I want everyone to watch it so I can talk about it with <laughs> you because I had such so many, so many feelings while watching it. So uh, if you... If you weren't turned off by our conversation and you want to watch it and then um email me so we can chat about it, go for it because I have
3: lots to say. I'd rather everybody go out and read Beyond the Synagogue and then call me to talk about that.
1: <laughs> there yeah, are I no babies crying in Beyond the Synagogue.
0: <laughs> I think that means that it is time for our endorsements um Mimi
1: are you ready to endorse I think so um so I want to share a playlist on Spotify of Shabbat music that I've been listening to a lot with my son it was put together by a friend of the podcast Rabbi Yosef Goldman um and it's just a really great way to get into the mood for Shabbat and start learning some songs um They're not kids songs. It's just like become part of what I do with my son on Fridays. Um, and then the other thing that I just want to say is that I am feeling really hopeful about where we are as a country and in my state of Massachusetts around the COVID pandemic and the health crisis. Um, but I am really in a lot of pain, um, and sadness. uh, dear family friend is in India with COVID and it's just a really bad place to be. Like his oxygen levels are dropping and there is not oxygen available in hospitals. There are not hospital beds available for him. And I just, I I am so happy for where we are. And I just really want people to remember other parts of the world that are still really suffering. And I think unnecessarily we as a global community could agree um, to direct resources there, also on my mind. Pertaining to your uh, playlist
0: recommendation, um, I love Yosef's playlists, I listen to them a lot. Did you know that Yosef was a member of the Miami Boys Choir?
1: I think I did know that, and it's creepy that I know that because
2: he didn't tell me. I just saw it on Facebook somehow. <laughs>
0: um, well, my favorite getting ready for Shabbat song is a Miami Boys Choir song, and we sing it in my house when we're getting ready for Shabbat. And it's really funny to me to think about like that. Yosef might be one of the little boy voices that I associate with that song. So, anyways, okay, those are. Good endorsements. Zahava, what do you have to share with us to endorse?
3: Um, It's more of a share than an endorse. So it's like a thing to watch. Um, I... My bet, tomorrow is that this is something you are already paying attention to, but um, I wanted to recommend that people look out for the Supreme Court's decision as we sort of enter decision season um, in Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. Um, this is a case that was argued back in November, um, and it's about the city of Philadelphia having a, a general Non-discrete set of non-discrimination rules for agencies that it contracts with um, and uh, the city discovering that um, a, a Catholic foster care association, um, had the Catholic social services had a general policy against uh, placing foster children with either unmarried couples or most saliently here, uh, same sex married couples um, and when the city learned in 2018 that Catholic social services would not certify same-sex couples, it instructed the agency that oversees the foster care system to stop uh, to stop sending foster care referrals to Catholic social services um, which has since filed a lawsuit that has made its way up to the Supreme Court So this was argued back in November um, and it implicates all kinds of things that are really fascinating um, and uh, I, I think that like whatever your immediate reaction on what you want the outcome of this to be is, and there are many layers implicated that might make you think in lots of different directions about this case. So from the perspective of thinking about, uh, discrimination and non-discrimination and inclusive values and how they might bump up against, uh, religious freedom requirements and how those might bump up against your notion of, you know, what's the ultimate good in terms of um, in terms of just what's best for kids and uh, what this might mean for for precedence about the First Amendment. So there's there's um, an important 1990s case called Employment Division versus Smith um, that's implicated here that theoretically could get overturned in some versions of how this case could come out, um, which has a basic standard that a a. Neutral law of general applicability that happens to burden the religious practice of some entity and that entity sues that does not itself invalidate the law. This is a a case that's actually about peyote use um, and anti-drug laws um, as they affect a um, an indigenous uh, an indigenous nation that uh, uses peyote for religious purposes. so I know this is sounding sort of complicated and like I'm down the rabbit hole, but that is how this case will make you feel if you start thinking about all of the competing values involved. I think it's fascinating. And just from the perspective of thinking about religious practice in this country and how all of our values affect each other, it's definitely worth watching. So um, to keep an eye out over the next sometime between now and the end of June, the Supreme Court will almost certainly decide Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. So just, uh, you know keep watch.
1: There was a really great um, episode of either The Daily or Today Explained. Um, I think it was The Daily that I'll include a link to about this case and what it means for sort of religious liberty and um, legal proceedings.
0: I particularly think this case is interesting because of how often in this country we outsource social services to religious organizations. So if we think about all of the things that Jewish federations do um in some of our communities for both Jews and non-Jews and similarly Catholic charities do these things um you know it, that those those things end up being often contracted by the government but they are religious institutions um and so yeah there's a lot of competing values there um yeah i would be really interesting um to see how that goes um okay well i have um in typical tomorrow fashion three endorsements that i'm really excited to talk about one of them is a novel called the marriage of opposites by alice hoffman um, which is about a jewish woman in the 1800s in saint thomas um and this woman is um Camille Passaro's mother and it's about her life um growing up in the Jewish community of St. Thomas and her um it's yeah i like i don't want to get into all of it but it is it's just like a really juicy complicated story um and it is based in on you know the real life of this woman and um i really really enjoyed it. Um, and if you like art, if you like Jewish history, if you like Jewish genealogy, it has a lot of issues of like um, parentage and adoption and kind of children going to other people's families kind of stuff. Um, it really like checked all the boxes for me. So I, I recommend that book. Um, I also want to recommend a graphic novel called Dancing at the Pity Party by Tyler Fetter. Um, I went to go pick up a different book from the library that I had put on hold because the libraries are not open here in Philadelphia. And I saw this book in the window. And I said to the librarian when I was picking up the book that I put on hold, I was like, can I also have that book? And she was like, yes. And she got it for me. And she was like, this is like one of the best books that I've read this year, which like when a librarian says that to you in a pandemic, like, whoa, (laughs) that must be good. And this book is, I, it's one of those books where I was like, someone wrote this book, like for Tamar Fox, (laughs) like it is about A, a woman, I know I've met, this is like my third, um, month in a row, I think saying that, but like, this is a book about a woman whose mother, she, this woman grew up in the Chicago area. She's Jewish. Her mother died when she was like young of cancer. Um, and it's about her mother's illness and death and like what it was like for her and her two sisters. And I was like that is me <laughs> like that story happened to me and in fact like this woman's mother died like 6 months after my mother died wow. um and so it's also like the time in her life and like the time in history I mean it was like super intense and the the my mother's name the woman, the mother in the book's name was Rhonda and um my I have we have a very good family friend who the mother was named Rhonda and died on mother's day, the mother's day after my mom died. And so, um, and she had two daughters. So I actually sent copies of this book to both my two sisters and to Rhonda's two daughters. I was like, we all need this book. Like this book was written actually about us. <laughs> um, and also I would not be at all surprised if both, either my mother or my friend's mother, Rhonda knew the Rhonda in this book. Um, So anyways, the book is incredible. It's called Dancing at the Pity Party. Um, And my third endorsement is for this TV show called Couples Therapy. Have either of you watched the show? No. Oh, my gosh. It is a show. It's like a documentary series of couples actually going through couples therapy. (laughs) The couples therapist is um, an Israeli woman who is a genius. Her name is Orna Goralnik. And she is like just incredible. And, um, you also get to at
3: least to have their couples therapy on television. I mean,
0: there's a lot of questions here, but the first season, uh, you also get to see her go to her clinical advisor to talk about like her processing, which is super fascinating. So the first season is amazing. And it had a couple who are from Philly where like three minutes into the show, you're like this man is a monster, (laughs) but like, it's fascinating to watch. I love that this episode is just me saying bad things about men. Men, (laughs) I love you. Um, Some of you. (laughs) A few of you. The second season has three couples in it, and one of them is a from couple. Um, And so it is just, I was like super excited when it started. Then the first episode happened, and I was like, oh, no, if the Jewish woman is the monster of this season, I'm going to be really upset. Um, And I don't think she's a monster, but I also was like, she doesn't come across great, but like the show is just like so good. I love watch like watching it and then discussing it with my partner is like just like the best <laughs> most satisfying feeling. Um so I highly recommend it. It's on Showtime, so that's like really annoying, <laughs> but it is absolutely worth it. And everybody that I have gotten to watch it has been become like absolutely obsessed also hilarious story about this is that there was the show's called couples therapy there was like a season one and then there was like a covid special and then there's a season two and in december my partner was like there's a um covid special for couples therapy and i thought he was saying (laughs) that like couples therapy was on sale for if we could get it and I was like what a weird way to tell me that you think we should have couples therapy but that was but not he- exactly what he was saying <laughs> <laughs> anyways this show is great you should definitely watch it okay that concludes my three.
3: Tamara's multiple endorsements just make me feel like I'm amazed that she finds the time to consume as many cultural artifacts as she does
0: it is truly amazing (laughs) i mean none of these are really big investments but they're all so good so um i was really excited to have an opportunity to tell people about them in case you can tell um all right so after you're done emailing me about chiva baby (laughs) you should feel free to also give me your thoughts on the my endorsement this week this month Thank you all so much for listening. If you made it through my epic endorsement, Orama. Um, if you have a minute, it would be really great if you could leave a, a review for us um, for the podcast or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. We're always looking for new things to talk about. You can leave a comment on a post on our on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, which is a really great way to support our show and ensure that we can bring you new episodes every month. Thank you so much to Daniel Zana for editing our episode this month. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zahava. Thank you. This was great. Yeah. And I will see you both next month.